0: Invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter twelve. We began our study in chapter twelve last week. We'll pick up where we left off. So good to uh, to see you for everyone to be here again. If you're visiting with us, we pray that you are encouraged and blessed by your time with us. You know it's easy to look at other people, to see their lives, maybe to see how comfortable and easy their lives appear to be, and think to yourself, wow, God is really blessing them. God is really pouring out his blessings on them. And we say that all the time. We think that. Um, And I'm not saying that that's not true. If God chooses to bless someone in that way, then uh, receive it with thanksgiving. Enjoy it. But oftentimes we look at someone who maybe has more than we have or uh, a nice new vehicle or a big house, and we say, oh, God is blessing them. We say that about ourselves. We we buy a new car, and someone says, oh, that's a nice car. And we say, oh, God is just really blessing me. That may be true, but it's not necessarily a sign of God's blessings. It's not necessarily a sign of God's approval or of God's love. Sometimes the sign that you are loved by God is that you're having struggles You're really undergoing some tough things in your life. Sometimes that is the very sign that you are being loved by God. Let's look at our text this morning. The the writer is going to, before we look at our text, the writer is going to encourage us with a couple of things. He's going to encourage us, as we saw uh, last week, He's going to encourage us with Jesus, and then he's also going to encourage us with Scripture. That's a a pretty good duo right there. It's a pretty good tandem. He's going to tell us, as we saw last week, to, to fix our eyes on Jesus. There are a lot of good examples that we looked at in Hebrews chapter 11. A lot of people that were living by faith, even when they died, they were still living by faith. They did not abandon the faith, even though they couldn't. See the promise. Even though they never received the promises in this life, they still were clinging to their faith when they died. Why? Because they could see something. They could see something that was invisible. They, they had eyes to see something that was into the future. It wasn't the here and the now that they were living for, but it was the then and the there. And so he tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus And as we close last week, he says in verse 3 of chapter 12, Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful men. Why? Why should we think on Jesus? Why should we consider him? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, that was the struggle for the the original readers of the book of Hebrews, they had the temptation to stop, to quit, to not run all the way to the finish line. And and as I told you last week, um, some commentators think that that might be the sin that so easily entangles or the sin that so easily ensnares us. In addition to that maybe being a certain sin that you struggle with, a certain sin that I struggle with, the commentator may, may say that the sin that the writer's talking about is the sin of quitting, of not persevering, because that's sort of the issue here. They were tempted to give up, to turn back to Judaism, to, to, to stop altogether, believing in this Jesus as Messiah. And he's wanting them to continue the race, to run with perseverance, to not give up. And so look at what he says in our reading today, beginning in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In your struggle against sin, what sin might that be? The sin of quitting, the sin of turning back, the sin of not running the race all the way to the finish line. And he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He just got through saying, consider Jesus. Consider him who endured the cross, who did shed his blood. And he hearkens back to those people at the end of chapter 11. Those people who were imprisoned, beaten, stoned, some sawn in two. Some of those folks did shed their blood. And he's telling them, look, (laughs) You're tempted to give up. You're tempted to to stop running this race. Jesus as your Messiah, heaven as your home, you're so tempted to stop. And he says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus did. He shed his blood. And you have been through some tough things. Earlier in the letter, he says, You've had your property confiscated, things taken away from you because you have faith in Jesus, because you put your trust in Jesus as Messiah. You've endured some, some opposition. These aren't, these aren't people that have never gone through some things, that have never suffered. These folks have suffered big time, a lot more than probably we have this morning. So they know what it means to suffer, but he says, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood You're still alive. So hang in there. And then he encourages them with this scripture. It doesn't sound like encouragement, maybe, but let's read it together in verse 5. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. Now he's going to quote from from Proverbs chapter 3. This is King Solomon Maybe the wisest man who ever lived, except for the Son of God. He says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Is that supposed to be our encouragement this morning? Is that the word of encouragement that you got for me? God loves you enough that He's going to discipline you, He's going to rebuke you, and He's going to punish you. Well, thanks a lot, preacher. But that's what He says. Don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Now that word discipline. Maybe your ver- I read several different versions this this past week. Maybe your version says the Lord chastens you. It it has that idea of Proverbs chapter twenty two, where it talks about training a child, train up a child. The, the The word there literally means to instruct or to educate, to teach. And so God is teaching us. How is He teaching us? He's teaching us. Through the things that we go through, some of the hard times, some of the struggles, and He punishes. The NIV says He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. The word there um, in your version it might say He scourges. Does anybody have that word in your in your translation? It says He scourges. That's the word that is used here, where it says He punishes, and literally it means to whip. Or to scourge. Boy, God loves us a lot, huh? <laughs> that he's going to punish us, he's going to scourge us, literally whip or to, to, uh, to flog. What it means, to whip or to flog. That's how much God loves us. Now listen, this is not the sermon about whether you should spank your children or not, okay? This is not that sermon. You should spank, but th- th- this is not that sermon. This is not that sermon. Any, any parent that loves their child will discipline them, okay? And I would venture to say that that's a big part of what is wrong with our world, our culture, is that not enough, not enough instruction has been given to our children. Can I say that? I'm just, I'm just going to say that. I'm not going to say that. Um, my wife would, uh, would get on to me. Um, but if you really love your child, you will discipline. If you don't love your child, give them everything that they want. If you don't love your child, never discipline, never spank, never um, teach them hard things if you don't love them but Solomon wrote in the Proverbs he who loves his son is careful to discipline him now, now discipline takes a lot of different things I'm not spanking's not always the answer okay I, I, I understand that and every child's different every child's different every each child doesn't come with their own instruction book in fact I, I don't think there's been any instruction book other than other than the Word of God, okay? The Word of God is our instruction book. But if you love your child, you're going to discipline. Um, some of the um, preachers in, in Africa, there's a, um, a post that we have, a thread that runs on WhatsApp. It's, a, it's an app, uh, and I can communicate back and forth across the ocean with my brothers in Ghana and Togo. One of the preachers posted something the other day saying that over the last several years, it's been the first generation of kids who have been raised without a human uh, babysitter, a human nanny, and it was showing where parents had bought iPads, um, iPads for their kids, and they give those kids their iPad to watch movies and to watch videos and those kinds of things, and that is their entertainment. And I'm going to tell you what, it's, that's easy to do, is it not? It's easy to, to fire up the iPad or to, to hand your kid, you know, your phone and, and put on a video, and the kid sits there, and they're just like this. They're just like, can't, I mean, they can't, they can't take their eyes off it. It's, they're just mesmerized. And so what the video was showing was parents taking away uh, the iPad saying, okay, that's enough. It's time. It's time to, to stop now. And you know what the children did? Yes, Father. I appreciate the 10 minutes you let me watch. Thank you so much. You think that's what happened? Child after child. No, that's right. Child after child after child started crying and screaming. Some were throwing fits. Some were actually hitting their parents, wanting the iPad back. And they were saying that this is the first wave, the first generation of children that had been raised just with, here, here's an iPad, watch something. That's not turning out really well in our society, okay? I'll just say that. That's not turning out really well. Listen to what the Hebrew writer is encouraging. He says, endure, we're in verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Now this is what I want to say. I don't believe that God punishes us for our sins. Now, now follow me, okay listen, to be sure, there are consequences to sin when we sin, there are natural consequences sometimes sometimes they don't hit us for for maybe weeks or years, but your sin will always find you out. Sometimes the consequence seems to be immediate, almost immediate. You sin and something happens. It's because there is a natural consequence to sin. When we do things, there's a natural price that has to be paid. But that's not God punishing us. Jesus took our punishment. Are you with me? Jesus died on the cross. He took the punishment for our sins. So I don't, and I know it feels this way because I felt this way in my own life that you've done things or you've said things or you've thought things that that are contrary to the the word of God and then something happens soon thereafter and you think, oh, God is punishing me. This is why this is happening because God is punishing me for my sins. I don't think that God is punishing us in that regard. I think those are sometimes the natural consequences of sin. But listen, we live in a broken world. I think you'd have to agree with me that we live in a broken world, right? You remember that training? I think you'd have to agree that we live in a broken world. God uses the brokenness, the pains, the struggles, the sins even, that are committed, that we commit, and that others commit. God uses all of that as discipline to teach us, to train us, because he loves us, because he loves us as sons. Now, look, here's the deal. It's it's sort of like a game show, okay? You know, what's behind door number one or what's behind door number two? And I think there are only two doors that we can choose. Rodney, what's behind door number one? Well, door number one, behind door number one is suffering. And there's suffering where you get angry and you grow bitter and you say, Why God? Why me? Why is this happening? And you grow farther and farther away from God because you don't see him as loving and kind and merciful because of what you're suffering. So behind door number one, suffering that drags you away from God. Well, Rodney, what's behind door number two? I'm glad you asked. Door number two, suffering. Suffering. Suffering that draws you closer to God. Suffering that possibly drives you to your knees where you spend more time in prayer. Suffering where you, you see God at work, even in the midst of the pain and the trial, and it's transforming you into the image of Jesus. You see, Christianity gives us the lens through which to see suffering. Door number one, suffering that pulls you away from God. Door number two is still going to be suffering. We cannot escape the suffering but we see it through a different lens. We see it as God loving us. Why would he do that? Because he's treating us as sons. And this this word endure, I want to share it with you. The Greek word that he's using here for endure, it has the connotation to stay in a place beyond an expected point of time. To stay in a place beyond an expected point of time. You see, you thought it was going to be over. You, you, you were going to suffer, and you knew that that was coming, and, and, and you kind of buckled up, and you were ready to endure that, but yet it's lasting longer. It's taking longer than you thought it was going to take. It's, it's dragging on. And the idea of endurance is you have to stay in that place for an extended period of time. You remember when COVID first hit? You guys remember that? I had just gotten back from Africa. I hadn't been back a week. I went to Oklahoma City, uh, preached and gave them a report about what we were doing in, in a church that I used to, to work in. And uh, and then about a week later, the everything shut down. And you remember what they said to us? Give us two weeks. You remember that? We're going to we're going to hunker down for two weeks, let this thing blow over, and then life will get back to normal. How long did those two weeks last? A month, two months, six months, a year, a year and a half? It seemed like it was almost two years. We had to stay in that place longer than we expected. That's, maybe that's not the best analogy, but you, you, you get the picture. Endurance. It means that you have to, you really have to hunker down and stay longer than you expected. It also has the idea to stand one's ground, to hold out. And that's what the writer is telling us. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? You show me a son who's not disciplined by his father... And I'll show you a, a wild, crazy, uh, troublemaking little boy. And, and whether you understand it or not, or whether you agree or not, this is my, my thought on the, on, the, on the matter, for whatever it's worth. Children not only need discipline, they crave it. They crave it. They want someone with a firm but loving hand. Firm but loving. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. You see, if you're not going through some stuff, if you're not being disciplined by God, it means that you're not his child. You're not his son. You'd be an illegitimate child. Moreover, verse 9, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. This is where we sort of run into a little trouble because there are some of you in the audience this morning who did not have Really good earthly fathers. I stand here before you this morning as one who did not have a good earthly father. I mean, he, he was non-existent in my life. And so our fathers project an image of God to us, as well they should. If you are a good, godly man, that projects an image of God to your child. If you are not a good, godly man, even just a mediocre man, that also projects something on God. Because a father is a child's first glimpse into what the heavenly father is like, good or bad. That's true, good or bad. Now, I've told you, when I was a, a baby, my father left. When I was just a young baby, maybe even less than a year old, my, my biological father uh, left, abandoned my older sister, me, and my mother. For over 50 years, uh, nobody's known what's ever happened to him. Um, a couple of, of his brothers, my father's name was Robert Lewis Johnson, my, my real name is Johnson. It's not Britt. I, I was born Rodney Lewis Johnson in Flint, Michigan. My father left, and a couple of his brothers, my uncles, looked for him. Um, one of them even uh, paid a private investigator to, to do the best he could to track down where Robert Lewis Johnson was. Nobody could find him. And you have to remember, this is in the day before internet and, and all these ways of tracking people. It was much, uh, much easier to just disappear, you know, back in the day. After probably over a decade of searching, they, they just kind of sort of gave up. He had disappeared and come back. He would be gone for a year or two or three and then come back. Uh, but this time he left and he never, ever came back. When I was three years old, my mom remarried um, a man whose last name was Britt. He adopted my older sister and I and me and changed our names from Johnson to Britt. And that was fine. Everything was fine. He was the only father I ever knew until I was about nine or ten years old. And, um, and then the wheels sort of fell off. <laughs> not, not good. Not good. Um, and and I'll just leave it at that. Haley, our daughter, was taking a class at Harding just this this semester, about a month ago, and part of the class that she was taking, she had to put together a family tree. Well, when you have stuff like what's happened in my family, the the tree gets kind of crazy. It doesn't grow up straight. It's Crooked and bent and all that. She called my mother and got my mom's side of the family and and all and and then she also asked her about Robert Johnson, my father. And so she told her as much as she could and and gave him uh, my grandparents' names, Lewis Johnson and Aline, and and she was working in this um, program that when you plugged in names and you had people, it, it would kind of spread out and find, you know, grandparents and great-grandparents and those kinds of things. In her searching, she came across a lady that had posted some things about a man named Robert Lewis Johnson. And so she, she clicked on it. She sent the link to, to my wife and um, Paula told me, she said, Haley thinks she has found your father. And so I said, send me the link. And, and I didn't look at it that night. I think I looked at it the next day, maybe, maybe two days later. I opened the link, and a lady had posted some things on a, on a, a website. I think it was called findagrave.com. People that had passed away. Uh, She had done this for family members, and she would do it for other people that she knew in hopes that it might help people track and find a loved one that they had lost contact with. I clicked on the link, and I opened it up, and it had a write-up about this man, Robert Bob Johnson, that she had known for about 25 years. And in it were about two or three pictures When I clicked on the first picture, I immediately knew that was my father. It looked like every picture that I'd ever seen of him when I was really little and and in my grandmother's old uh, picture albums, every picture that I'd ever seen of him, it looked just like him. It looked a lot like me. And when you go prematurely bald, you look the same for many, many years. (laughs) You don't change a lot. That's sort of been the history of my family. Um, At 30, you look about the same as you do at 60. Just a few more wrinkles, but no hair. I immediately knew it was my father. Now, growing up, in my mind, my father was dead. He, he, He was just dead. Not only was he dead to me, I just thought he was physically dead. Maybe that was just a, something I, I told myself. Because why would a father abandon his children and never, ever come back? Never, ever say anything. Never, not show up for his own parents' funeral. Why, you know, why would a man do that? So in my mind, I, I think I just reasoned that he was dead. I read this lady's article about Robert Lewis Johnson, my father. He's buried in a small town in Mississippi. He died in 2008, just 16 years ago, living in a place that was not all that far from places I have lived, and yet I never knew him. So I come to a passage like this, and maybe you, maybe you come to this passage, and you read about a loving father who disciplines his child, and that child respects him, even though he doesn't like it necessarily, he respects his father, and that's a hard pill for you to swallow, because maybe you didn't have that. I didn't have that. And I've admitted to you before, I look around and some of you have had godly fathers. And when you speak of your father, it's as if, man, I I wish I could be like him. I, I I want to emulate him. He was such a good man. Almost like a twinkle in your eye when you speak about your father. I envy that so badly. I have missed out on that all of my life. And I look at some of you older men, and I've, and I've done this in the years past, and there are certain men that I have looked at and thought, man, I wish he were my father. I wish I had a father like that. And I see some of you men here, and I know some of your stories, and I know how your children have turned out. And if I'm being honest, I'll look at you and I'll think, man, I wish you were my father. So when I pray and I say, Father in heaven, that means a lot to me because he's really the only father I've ever had. Our Father which art in heaven. That's not just the way I start my prayers. That means a lot to me. So, he says, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more? He goes from the lesser to the greater. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits And live, really live. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. I mean, every human father, even the good ones, are just doing the best they can. They make mistakes. But God disciplines us for our good. It's for our good that he lets us go through some things, not because he doesn't want us to have fun, not because he's punishing us for our sins, but because he loves us enough to let us go through things that will make us stronger, that will, that will create perseverance and faith and produce things in us that cannot be produced any other way. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. How many of you had your humanly your human father say to you when he was fixing to give you a spanking, now, this is going to hurt me worse than it's going to hurt you? Anybody ever hear that? That's a, that's a lie. <laughs> I've, I've, I've done both of those. I've been on both sides of that equation. It, hurt, it hurts the guy getting the spanking more than it hurts the daddy. Now, I know nobody likes to punish their kids, and it, it doesn't feel good. I get that but it's going to hurt you worse than it's going to hurt me. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. It's painful, but later on, look at it, later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. A harvest of righteousness. Righteousness means that you're right with God. You're You're living in a way that's pleasing to him. And it's not, you know, when you plant something, you reap a lot more than you plant. If you plant one kernel of wheat, you don't just get one kernel of wheat. You get a lot more. And here it says, if you are disciplined by God, you will reap a harvest of righteousness and peace. Peace is not just the absence of conflict, but it's an inner It's an inner peace that just passes understanding. God gives that to us. The reason God disciplines us is because he loves us. And Christianity gives us the proper lens through which to see that. The world doesn't see that. But you and I, as children of God, when we go through things, it's because God is training us. In holiness you see this life is a preparation for the next life God is training us to be holy because one day we're going to be in the presence of the Holy One and live with him forever what does it mean to be holy holy means literally just to be to be separated to be set apart to be used for something that's noble you know, in in the tabernacle or in the in the um, the temple. There we go. In the tabernacle and in the temple, they had plates and they had chalices and pitchers that were set aside to be used in the temple. They weren't so different than regular plates and chalices and and pitchers, except that they had been taken and set apart to be used in the service of the Lord. Those things were now holy. And that's what God is doing with us. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. He's separating us out through his discipline to make us holy, to make us righteous, training us for what is to come when we stand in the presence of the Holy One and live forever. Bow with me. God, we love you. And Father, we admit to you that we don't always understand your discipline, how how you bring it about, the different things that you use, our situations, maybe even our own sin. But Father, help us to see your discipline as something that draws us closer, not as a punishment necessarily, but something that will make us more like Jesus. Father, we want to be like Jesus. We want to act like him and talk like him and do the things that he would do and love the way he would love and have compassion on those he would have compassion. Help us. Help us, Father, to have the resolve to bear up, to endure, to stay in that place maybe a little longer than we think we should, should have to, knowing that you're training us to be righteous and holy. Thank you, Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.